Hello, and welcome to Relative Pitch, a podcast about music, culture, and society from a young perspective. Our initiative is to bring fresh new ideas to the music field. Here are your hosts, Lauren Green, Anthony Morris, and Michael Brown. So Dr. Moses and Professor Jackson, what are you both doing during this year to celebrate Black History Month during a pandemic? Well, I'll begin. Um, I've got several performances during the month of February and, and many of them unexpectedly so because I felt February was going to be with the pandemic going on, it was going to be rather quiet. And then suddenly things started happening. So beginning right away with uh, February 12th, uh, I think both Tyrone and I we are performing for students at KSU uh, with the Music Coalition, I believe. And uh, we're both on that performance. And then on February 20th, uh, KSU is having its uh, Black History Month program. And I think it's with the whole School of Music is somewhat involved in that. And so I'm participating in that. Um, which, um, and then finally, on February 26th, I am decided at the last minute that I would do a recital of spirituals, of which I'm calling uh, spiritual sankofa. And you know, the word sankofa is to return, to look back. It is the bird that's moving forward with its head looking back. And so thinking of that as looking, taking, looking back at the Negro spiritual as sort of a foundational form of music for the music that, that we do. And then all the way in April, I'm doing a sort of a brief overview of African-American music for the Rotary Club in San Francisco. So, <laughs> So that's that's enough of that. <laughs> but it's it's all and and I guess finally in June, I'm doing a recital also for Fisk University. And they're celebrating the month of Black Music Month. And they've asked me to do a recital. So I'll I'll do a few things that's going to be happening. And I'm hoping that by June things will be a little bit better for us. You know, since I've had my vaccine already, I'm hoping. (laughs) Yep. So, okay. So, well, I wish I would have gone first now since you're so prolific, Dr. Moses. But yeah, I I do have. um, So, the first thing that I have is uh, February 6th, this upcoming Saturday, I'm doing a recording. It was supposed to be a, a concert, but because of COVID, yeah. Um, I'm happy that they decided to do a, a recording that they're going to stream, but yeah. it's with uh, this wonderful um, trombone player named Wycliffe Gordon. Oh yeah, played, oh, yeah. He played with the Lincoln Center Jazz Band with Marcellus. He's also um, he's in Augusta right now teaching out there, and he's just That's where all... I'm from. Oh really? <laughs> <Yes>. Okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. You might know his uh, his sister Karen Gordon is an educator out there. She's a pianist. But he's an incredible writer, arranger, and uh, we are recording uh, a suite that he wrote um, 
at the Douglas Theater in Macon on February 6th. And that's where we're from. Me and Michael are from Macon. You're just really <laughs> wow. So wow, I'm covering all the bases, huh? Yes. So uh it, it's gonna be great. Uh I look forward to going to that theater. There's so much history behind it. And uh I, I think that like Dr. Moses says, uh uh, when we get to that theater, we can maybe create better music with knowing our ancestors that gone before right. us. You know? And um, um, it's, it's very serious when you think about um, how far we have come with so much against us mm -hmm. to be to create this music that's indigenous to America that's affected the world and is from the most humble beginnings, mm -hmm. this music started from our culture mm -hmm. and is known as American music across the planet, you know? Right. So, and I know Dr. Moses doesn't take that lightly. As a matter of fact, mm -hmm. he gave me a poster. Dr. Moses was so giving, he gave me his uh, office. And as a parting gift, he gave me this poster with all the jazz greats, just the lineage and it's chronologically set up. I just love the poster. I'm yeah. going to get it professionally mounted. And uh, once I redo my office, uh -huh. I'm going to uh, put it in there, uh, in my home office, not my school office. Yeah, great. But, uh, <laughs> well, good. That, that, see, right. I, I wanted to give it to someone that I knew. I said, I got need to give this poster to someone that I can really appreciate. And I yeah. know they're going to appreciate it. Yeah, I'm totally satisfied with that. Thank <laughs> you. And I use it as a teaching mechanism. I roll it out and show my students, this is where it came from. And so then the other thing that I'm most proud of is the Black Musicians Coalition. Oh, yeah. I am the uh, faculty advisor to the group. And I will say I was really, really busy. And as much as I wanted to be on it at first, I didn't think I had the time enough to give them what I thought they would need to have. But surprisingly, everybody banding together said, uh, Professor Jackson, look, just sign up the paperwork. You see what we can do later on. And the students were so driven yeah. that it moved me to say yes. It moved me to say, okay, whatever capacity y'all need me in, that's fine. Because I didn't want to cheat them out of the experience of, of pushing forward this initiative that hasn't been put forth before. And I don't want to be the reason why it wasn't, if it was mediocre, I wanted it to be great. But moved by their, their they're just overwhelming energy toward it. I said, yeah, whatever responsibility y'all need me in. So uh, with Dr. Moses, we're also going to be performing on um, the 13th, right? Uh, the 12th. 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 Yeah, 12th. Okay, that's the Friday. Yes, the Friday. Right. 12th. Okay. Yes, got to get the dates right. I better show yes. up. <laughs> yes. And I will say they was getting ready to work me and, and say, hey, Mr. Professor Jackson, you can play for this. You can play for that. I was like, oh, no, I can't. They, I never, right. <laughs> But I'm very excited. I, I had a rehearsal with uh, with Chris, uh, and we went over the the duet that we're playing, and I'm really looking forward to playing that, as well as all the other uh, performances is going to be. So I'm looking forward to a good time, and uh, I also have um, something in um, uh, Milledgeville, but uh, that's going to be um, closer toward the 20th, I think. It hasn't unfolded fully because. You know, of COVID, and you're still trying to figure out if they're going to do a socially distanced concert, and if it's going to be cold. And you know, Millsville Lauren is on the way to Augusta, so you know. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, that pales in comparison to Dr. Moses, but you know. Oh, 
<laughs> no, and, and we, we're all out there just trying to do something, you know? Right, you're right. And, and you're right. The, the important thing is that we don't stop in the month of February because yeah. the celebration of the music of African-Americans, I think it goes 24, seven, 12 months out of the year. Amen. You know? That's why I mentioned June yes. already. Because well, we I was telling moving. somebody, I was telling somebody the other day that um, he was talking about the Green Book Manual. You guys know what Green yes. Book Manuals are, mm -hmm. and uh, if y'all don't know, it's the it's the manual of places that you can stay over in segregated South and places where yeah. you can eat yeah. uh, and not be harassed and stuff like uh -huh. that. You know, uh -huh. and so in the process, they was talking about how um, they, they showed a documentary how the people said you never paid with a twenty dollar bill because you, they wouldn't give you change back. You'd have to pay with exact change or yeah. fill up that $20 and all these different things. And I told the guy, he said, this is black history. I said, no, this is history. It's, it's not just black history. This is American history. This is what happened. And I think that too often we put a black history month, like we as black people need to know about history, black history, uh -huh. but this is America's history. And you don't want to talk about the bad things, but just like our families, there's bad things that's happened in our families and we have to address yep. it. You yep. know? And yep. so if we all want to be one and hopefully with Biden and, and Kamala Harris, that yep. we have this thing that we all have to come together because we are all together. And you can look at Kamala and her, and her racial makeup being, and even Obama being yes. half white, half black, but America looks at him as being the first black president. Right. Yes. Or Kamala Harris being the first black woman vice president. Why, why is that? Because America has determined what uh, parts of history they want to say is this yeah. and that. And yeah. so this is, if you want to, if you want to choose what history you want to choose, you got to choose all of it. <laughs> you can't yeah. just yeah. say this yeah. is black history and we just do it at 28 and maybe 29 days of February. Right. This is all of our history. So it's right. all of our history. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But well, that's an interesting, I, I, I need to chat with you. You just mentioned the green book. See yeah. you, you guys. You guys should know. You can't invite us on <laughs> to do this. This is true. This is true. <laughs> um, Green Book, my pianist, the man who has my, been my friend for forty years and plays for me in Germany. His grandfather, he grew up in Denver, Colorado, mm -hmm. and it was at his grandfather's house, George Morrison, who was a black violinist in the nineteen twenties. Their house was one of the houses where all the black jazz musicians stayed when they traveled out west and so his mom grew up with having people like duke ellington at their house nat king cole all these top artists they had no place to stay when they came to denver they all went to george morrison's house and that's wow. where they stayed so that's yeah quite a bit of history such rich history and yes. you know all of this history that we're talking about, I mean, that's why we really wanted this week's to be the impact of both jazz, gospel, spirituals, and throughout mm -hmm. the Black experience. Because for so many times, like, no one really talks about that unless it's Black History Month. And I think when I was in college, that's what I really wanted to focus on is that Black experience. Where are the Black mm -hmm. composers? Where are the Black musicians? And I do want to say uh, for the KSU Black uh, music coalition let me tell you they are all of my babies they are <laughs> you know started um it, 
just seeing what they're doing around there in KSU, oh my goodness. And that brings me to my first question for both of you. Seeing that um, both of you are at KSU and you've seen all of this um, um, things go on through that last year and seeing the Black Music Coalition be formed, does that make y'all proud? Like, are y'all super duper proud of just seeing that these are the students of tomorrow? These are the students of today. How does that make y'all feel about that? Mm. I, th I think I'll start off. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that, and Dr. Moses could, could uh, back me up on this. I think the students have always been there. I think the opportunity, and I have to give it up to the present administration that's going out of their way to make sure that they are like, think about where our university is. It's in Kennesaw, yes. right? Which is, they still have a Confederate like shop and museum right down in the town of Kennesaw. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we protested so, it. Right, exactly. And to st for, for that to still exist and for the university says no, which is a state university to say no, we're gonna honor this out of duress, out of maybe George Floyd bringing awareness to it um, is a big thing. What I'm most proud of is that the students are stepping up in a way where they're not letting anger dictate where they move from here. Mm -hmm. And listen, the emotions are really real, you know, and if we don't deal with the emotions, you can get sick if, if you don't deal with these emotions. And after what happened with George Floyd and so many others and Breonna Taylor and stuff, the emotions of, were, were bubbling over. And uh, when we find out that movement of the black and the arts and stuff like that, and then everybody started sharing their stories, um, it became a movement that you guys took and some of you guys took knowing that y'all were gonna graduate from school and have to leave y'all baby with other people to take care of, yeah. which I applaud you guys for doing. And so I'm proud of you guys who stepped up and started it, but uh, the most thing I'm proud of right now is that uh, I get the group text and see how much excellence there, want, there, there, there needs to be out of this program and how they're pushing it for it. And um, I, I really see see the improvement in the singular focus of, of our black people in the arts. And I'm just ready for it to just proliferate all over the university. So yeah, I'm, I'm proud of this time. I'm also proud of our university for stepping forward and saying, we wanna deal with diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Yeah, well, you know, look, I, I have history at Kennesaw. I came to Kennesaw two years after it had become a four-year school and it was raw <laughs> it was i mean i think i was the first full-time african-american faculty hired in the department of music and i was among seven African-Americans that was hired at one time that came in in 1984 wow. at Kennesaw. And so we were, we had less than a hundred students of color on campus. And the student population was like 4,800 students. Wow. Okay. So it was a very 
interesting campus, although I had wonderful students in the Department of Music. Uh, I had one African-American voice major who was there. And, and that's basically how I started in 84. And so it was up to the black faculty that had just started there, that if there was gonna be anything in recognition or honoring the history of African-Americans during the month of February, we had to do it. And we had to do it kind of in an uphill situation, so to speak. And the only place that we could hold anything was in the student center at lunchtime when all of the students were in buying food and cash registers clinging. And all, you know, you had students sitting around you that weren't interested at all and were really kind of like against you doing it. And so we almost had to force, we did our way into presenting a program. Into, but we did it because we had the backing of the president, Betty Siegel, and she wanted us to do it. And so she would sit there and what we would do, invite the black community to come in. So you had this interesting kind of conglomeration of people. You had the students who were in Kennesaw, white students, you had maybe one or two black students. You had a few folk from the black community and you had the black professors all there trying to celebrate Black History Month and trying to do one little program that was interrupting people. And probably for some people it's saying, yes, we did it, you know, but that's basically where having recognition of African-Americans on that campus, it came from that standpoint. And so and we have made sure, we made sure that in those early days that we would always emphasize having something in your department or in your school that celebrated African-American music, uh, music or just the history of African-Americans. Yeah. Okay, so it is really wonderful to know that that is still going on. And it came from that all the way back there, 1984, when there was nothing and we had to create it, okay? And so it is, we have to keep it moving. So we're looking to those babies who have started a Black Music Coalition to do whatever you do that will move it forward, you know, just the celebration because Kennesaw's state university is a state school, okay? Where we celebrate all the many different kinds of cultures and diversity, okay? And so, and that's what it should be every year, celebrating who we are and really making sure that we are visible on that campus, okay? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, would, I would say that Dr. Moses has been a trailblazer for me coming in as um, uh, um, the Black uh, African-American uh, musician now uh, coming into faculty full time. And uh, I just leaned on him heavily. And if, if it wasn't for anything, and it's something I want you guys to recognize, um, Dr. Moses always has a smile on his face. He's always, but 
besides his amazing talent is his work ethic and knowledge. And if it wasn't for his ability to be great at his craft, we would I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be at Kennesaw because the legitimacy of, of what he does and what he is, is known all around the world, right? And when I said I was going to Kennesaw, uh, John Lawless, who I played with at uh, a church that was playing, uh, he said, hey, you're gonna be there? He says, man, he says, Dr. Moses is incredible. You need to meet him soon as you get there. And I said, yeah, I've heard of Dr. Moses, but I've said, I, and the great thing is my teacher uh, when I was growing up was Moses Hogan. So ah. to hear Oral Moses and my teacher was <laughs> yeah. Moses Hogan, who desperately wanted me to go to Dillard University. Yes. He taught, and where my mother went to Dillard University. Uh. Uh, uh, but I went to UNO, uh, University uh. of New Orleans, where Ellis okay. Marcellus came back. And, yeah. and, but anyway, so I had heard, heard of Dr. Moses and John Lawless says, you will never hear a singer like him before. And I said, uh. well, where did you hear him? He's like at the faculty concert. He sang and he said, no microphone. He said, I was way in the back. And he said, I heard his voice just pure from the front to the back. Yeah. And he says, he works hard and he's intelligent and he knows his history and he, he's so musical and all these different things. And this is a top notch performer with the Atlanta Symphony is telling me this before I even met Dr. Moses. Yeah. So his legacy went on before I even got there. And yeah. I said, I have to promote myself with the same intensity with the same uh, kind of excellence and uh, the same kind of humility that I see Dr. Moses. And wouldn't you know, Dr. Moses uh, let me use his office when uh, I got there. Cause there was, I, I was sharing the office with Sam Skelton, uh, but I was so happy to be able to get an office now that I've just taken over. I don't even yeah. know when you're in there, Dr. Moses. I'm sorry. Look, I planned, I planned not to be in there. <laughs> <laughs> You know, this is, I got beside myself, I will have to say, just to hearing y'all talk is just amazing. I did not ask y'all to introduce yourselves and tell us about a little part of your life. Where did you start from? What colleges did you go to? How did you end up at the place you are right now? I'm sorry I got beside myself. I just love hearing y'all talk. So look, I got it. I, I, before we do that, I did not know that you you studied with Moses Hogan. I did, yes. I did I love and, Moses Hogan. Oh my and God. Look, and Moses Hogan and I did performance together right really? here in Atlanta. We talked and and we just before he took my CDs and we were in touch and he wrote me back. He said, I've listened to one of your CDs and I really like it. I'm going to really listen to the other. And that's when he had that massive. Yeah. Uh, what what was it? Whatever. Aneurysm or whatever. Right. Right. Yeah. But uh, Moses Hogan we were trying to follow him because I came to Michigan, I was at Michigan. Moses Hogan came to Michigan as a piano major, stayed yeah. two weeks and left. Wow. <laughs> so, but at any rate, let me back, okay, go ahead. You want me to go first? Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> well, uh, since we mentioned Moses Hogan, well, let me just kind of get started. My um, my mother, I have two, two brothers that's really close in age. My older brother is only 13 months older than I am. My younger brother is, is three years younger than I am. So my mother um, saw the value in music, but uh, her, her mother worked really hard to get a piano uh, for my mother. My mother played it for two weeks and then quit. And she played saxophone for school and then she quit. So my mom said that she blamed her mother, that she didn't 
make her stick with it. So she wasn't going to do that with us. So uh, we started off taking piano lessons and um, we started getting really, uh, really good. And um, next thing you know, we started outgrowing our neighborhood teacher, which she was really good, but she had the insight to say, hey, you guys need to move on. And she recommended Moses Hogan. Well, mm. actually, I got I digress. There's this, um, I was I was auditioning for NOCA, which is New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. And uh, a guy by the name of Dr. Roger Dickerson taught at Southern University in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And I started taking lessons with him first, but then uh, his schedule got hectic because he was a composer as well. And when I auditioned for NOCA, they, they turned me on to uh, Moses Hogan. And so um, when I studied with Moses Hogan, me and my two brothers studied with him. And most people don't know how incredible of a classical pianist he is. Oh, he was. oh yes. And I mean, everything he, he um, I, I didn't know that. Well, I'll talk about that in a second, how he got into the, the, the writing the spirituals. So um, he, I remember went to his, uh, his condo downtown in um, this uh, district, this mills, mills, it was an old mill that they turned. I can't think of the name of it, but his, I've never seen a black person live like that. He had a spacious pad, a beautiful uh, Steinway piano and all this stuff. And I said, what is he doing? You know, I was like, I want to do that, you know. And he had like, at that time, he had a brand new Jetta, whatever, Volkswagen Jetta. Not too many people had Volkswagen Jettas, you know. Uh -huh. I was like, man. And so he had done some recordings and he, uh, uh, so then my parents got divorced and my mom said she only had enough money to keep one of us in piano lessons. Uh, and so that happened to be me. I was a little bit better than my older brother and younger brother. And I seemed like I had the more, much more of a direction and focus toward it. So I stayed with uh, Moses Hogan. Um, I think they got divorced in, when I was in ninth grade. So 10th through 12, I was with Moses Hogan and he wanted me to go to Dillard University and, and I applied, got a scholarship. But then I found out Ellis Marcellus, the father of Winton and Branford Marcellus uh, moved uh, moved to UNO where he got a grant and endowment from the Coca-Cola bottling company, which is crazy. Uh. So um, that's when I decided I wanted to do jazz. Now, here's the crazy thing. Um, as, as much as Moses Hogan did, I didn't see a future with me in classical music because I didn't have the start that most of my contemporaries did have. And I didn't think I was really willing to put in the work to, to there's this girl and she was um, a, a white American girl and she was all world playing classical music. And when she graduated from college, she worked as a florist. And I'm like, if she can't make it as good as she is, what's gonna yeah. happen with me? And I saw, you know, Moses Hogan was telling me, he's like, I've competed. And he said, I've, I got close to getting the Van Cliburn Award, but if you don't get first place in the Van Cliburn Award, or even third place, whatever, your your career is limited, you know, what you sure. can do, especially as an African-American, you know. So um, in the course of studying at, at UNO, I said, well, I love jazz and New Orleans is a, is a hodgepodge of all these different styles of music. So I said, well, I really want to start studying jazz. And so I was doing that. And in, in the, um, the program setup, there was this guy named Victor Goins. He was really young, phenom. I didn't know he was really close to our age, but he told me that um, 
he was going to be working with Moses Hogan. I said, well, what are you mo working on Mo with Moses Hogan on? He's, he was very proficient at Finale when it first came out. In fact, Victor Goins was so proficient at it that he sent Finale 200 fixes that they needed to do, and they did it because he sent them in. So I said, what do you mean you work with Moses Hogan on something? I said, that was my teacher. He's like, oh, okay. He said, well, he's doing these spirituals, and I'm helping him engrave it and put it into Finale. And I said, what? So the first thing I think he did was uh, either go down Moses or Joshua, fit the battle or Jericho, one of those. And it instantly became repertoire. Uh, and all of the spirituals was like repertoire mm -hmm. across the board. And next thing I know, he must have moved into an even bigger place because I couldn't even talk to Moses Hogan after that. You know? <laughs> he was touring all around the world. And uh, I mean, I, just to be able to be this classical pianist and find another niche was incredible to me. And I think as musicians, we always got to wear different hats. We never know what's going to stick, you know. But just just to, to have that background. So anyway, so I went to University of New Orleans, studied with Ellis Marcellus, which was great. Um, and then I left there and moved to uh, Georgia. And um, the crazy thing is, I, I quit school. I left school. I was uh, uh, engaged to get married. And uh, we decided to try to find a place. She was a musician as well. She was a gospel musician. And I didn't really know a lot about gospel music. And she taught me about gospel as I was teaching about jazz. And um, we decided to move to Atlanta and she was a music teacher and we, we broke up. We started arguing as soon as we got to the border. Well, I had too much pride to go back to New Orleans because I was like, I, I left some gigs behind and I was just getting my name out in New Orleans. So I, I decided I was gonna try to make it work in Atlanta. But um, I, I realized I was working with some people who would call me in to help with their jazz band and stuff. And they would pay me $50, $75, $100 here. And I said to myself, I have this knowledge, but I don't have a piece of paper to show that I have this knowledge. And I was like, these people are paying me a little bit of money to help out. Although I was thankful I was, but I was like, why can't I do the things that they're doing? It's because I don't have this piece of paper, you know? So one of the hardest things I ever did was go back and forth between Atlanta and New Orleans and, and finished up my degree within one semester. It was crazy to do it. And um, uh, that's why you have to have a good support system around you, you know. And a friend of mine, she told me, she said, look, it's only gonna seem like, it, it seemed like it's long, but it's gonna be over with before you know it, just, just stay the course. And I made a point to myself, I was gonna try to get the best grades I could get, not to skimp on anything. And when you get older, you look back and see that the money that I owe in school loans and stuff like that, that was my money that I was paying. I should have taken my education much more seriously because this is my money I've been paying, you know? Right. And so I, when I went back, I got a 3.75 grade point average when I, when I did, did, did that. And then a year later, um, I got hired by Kennesaw State University when it was start, just starting. They didn't even have the jazz program yet, but uh -huh. um, Sam Skelton, right. he had some students that were learning jazz and they were putting on these concerts. And some of the people wanted to learn how to uh, play jazz piano. So I was adjunct faculty at that point. Right. So then I went back to Georgia State and got my master's degree and I finished with a 4.12 grade point average. I got straight A's across the board, A pluses and stuff. So I made up in my mind that I was not gonna cheat myself. I was gonna uh -huh. give, it, give it the best I can. If I made a B, it was because that's all I could get was a B. But uh -huh. if there was a chance, an opportunity for me to get an A, 
I was going to get an A. And so uh, thankfully, um, um, much later, I was teaching an improv class and I, we got the jazz degree program and it started growing. And um, Sam Skelton and Trey Wright, uh, they were both uh, full time, but it grew so quickly that I started getting classes. And then uh, a teacher, I can't think of the teacher's name, was cross-listed with American Studies, the blues class. And by me getting that blues class, that pushed me over time into a full-time position. And I remember getting called in Dr. Alexander's uh, office, Michael Alexander, who was the uh, interim uh, uh, school of music director. Right. He said, hey, Tyrone, um, uh, just wanna let you know, uh, we got a problem. It, you, where you are right now, you would be considered full-time and the university would have to pay you and have insurance for you. Or we'd have to cut your hours and hire somebody else because you could sue the state since it's a state school if you are not getting insurance, but you have these, a lot of these hours. So I'm saying, I thought it was some positive, but when he said he's gonna cut the hours, I'm like, oh man, am I about to be demoted or something? What, what, what is going on? <laughs> And he said, no, but we're not going to do that. We, he said, we have uh, one professor that's retiring and there's two other people that's in the same boat and we're going to split their salary and uh, allow you to be full-time. I was like, oh, thank you, God. I was like, I thought I was about to be gone. And that's how I got to Kennesaw. And uh, that's how I got to become full-time. So that's wow. my story. That's nice. Dr. Moses, how, what was your road to where you are right now? Good grief. I, I left high school, graduated from high school, and back in the brown shoe army. <laughs> Before many of you, all of you were born, I was almost drafted into the army, Vietnam army, a war. And I did go, but I didn't go to Vietnam. I ended up going to Germany. And when I got in Germany, they had two courses, singing courses, army courses, one which was just a, in a small uh, little regiment and another one that was really kind of um, uh, main chorus for um, Germany. And so I auditioned, it was the seventh army soldiers course and I, I made it, I got in. And they had about, they would audition about 500 soldiers per year. And they had only 30 people um, in the group. So I got into that group and I spent the next two and a half years as a singing soldier and did 260 some performances in throughout Germany, uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, in all the NATO countries. So that's how I spent my military career. And when I came from that, came from that, it's making a long story short, I auditioned and got into Fisk University. When I got into Fisk University, I auditioned and became a Jubilee singer and spent the next years as a Jubilee singer at Fisk University and graduated and won a fellowship to Europe, went back to Europe again after I graduated, spent a year in Europe and then came back and was admitted to the University of Michigan for a master's and a doctoral program there. And so finished my work there 
And after all of that, uh, I had two offers. Uh, one to go to Penn State and the other one to come to this little school that I had never heard of in my life. <laughs> and I was kind of leery about coming to Georgia. I was like, uh-uh, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go to South. <laughs> because as a child, we had moved from South Carolina, which was segregated, to Connecticut. And so I spent all my formative years, high school years and all, uh, in Connecticut. And I, and I was like, I'm never going back to the South again. But so lo and behold, I ended up coming back to the South because my mother had worked and had retired and moved back to South Carolina. So I said, ah, I'll, I'll go to Georgia. I'll be close to my mother because I can go and see her often. And who knows it, but I did that. And which I'll say this and move on. I got here on August 29th and because of an illness, my mother passed away on August 30th. So I was like, okay, now I've done all that. <laughs> Just for my mother, she passed away. But at any rate, but so I spent the years here at Kennesaw and it's been really good for me because of, I, I think what I've been able to do as far as my career, um, I did not want to have a career specifically in opera but I wanted to have a career teaching as well as performing. And I've been able to do that. I've spent um, the past, I've done 30 Christmases in Germany every year. So I've been fortunate enough that I'm asked to come to Europe every year for performances. And so I did that and I'm still doing that, you know, and, and, and teaching. So I really, so, you know, people say, well, you can't really have a career in music and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, you can't, I can't say that because I've had a wonderful career in music. And, and Tyrone, I guess you can say the same thing. I'm having a, you know, uh, I don't regret studying music at all. I don't regret what I do. And if I had to do it all over again, I would try to do it just a little bit better, but the same thing. <laughs> yeah. So that's it briefly about me. So I've, yeah, and I said, I'm still performing, still teaching, and who knows when it will stop, but one day. <laughs> this, this is just awesome for me, like learning more about like how y'all grew up, what, how you're like so good at your craft now and how you're portraying uh -huh. it. I have a question for y'all. Uh -huh. What do y'all see lacking in today's music education pertaining to jazz and gospel education? Well, I can continue talking. First and, and, and foremost, I, I think at many of the schools, there are jazz programs that we've had jazz courses and we've had jazz bands and we can name some of the bigger schools that have had like Dallas-Fort Worth, University of Texas at Dallas-Fort Worth. We can talk about our New England Conservatory and that book, uh, Gunther Schuller, who wrote the book on jazz. We can talk about, there are any number of big schools that have had jazz programs, but I think where it falls down is when you get into the smaller schools that can't afford 
to have um, instrumental programs. And then of course, can't always, don't always have the students to offer courses. So, but I think jazz has always fared far better in the, especially in the undergraduate curriculum. Okay, and, and uh, I know because I taught introduction to jazz when I first came to Kennesaw. And, and, and you know, and well, I won't say any more than that, but, but Tyrone will know, understand the level at which you teach that, okay? But the, the, uh, the one genre of music that has not had any recognition in academia has been gospel, okay? And so that has always been hard because, and we can look back at that, it has never had, gospel has always been sort of a grassroots kind of music and wasn't even allowed on campus until the 1960s when students uh, forced it on campus. And that was right after the assassination of Martin Luther King, okay? And I was a freshman at Fisk University in 1971. And in 1969 was when students at Howard, at Fisk, at Clark College here in Atlanta, at Miles, at Payne, and these are all HBCU campuses where they decided they wanted to have gospel music on campus, music that was more akin to the African-American community. And they started this, but they had to fight the administration in order to have it on campus. So I got there in 1971 in the midst of the fights when students were literally fighting the administration fighting the alumni of these schools and fighting their parents because gospel music was not that kind of music that anyone who was to be educated that should be singing. You know, that music is not, it's not good music. You're going to ruin your voices. You're going to do this. You're going to do all of that. And, but students were determined. And so out of that came gospel choirs on campus. And so today, and that spread from the HBCU campuses onto the more mixed college uh, uh, campuses, okay? So that's why we have gospel choirs on, on campus. And out of that, we are finally growing into gospel and at some schools having a course, uh, but, but gospel having more recognition on campuses now. I think it is an accepted group or I say ensemble on campuses now. And you, and, and in fact, you'd hardly want to go to a campus and say, y'all don't have a gospel choir? They kind of go, no, really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's become, it's become that now. But I, I think gospel still has a ways to go. Although I, I would not be surprised if people would not, somebody would not start offering some kind of study uh, academic uh, uh, approach to gospel music. Okay, but that's my take on it, so. Well, just like Dr. Moses says there, um, so the only one I know about is Berkeley that has like a gospel track as yes. far as it's kind of like even teaching musicians how to play gospel. Um, the evolution of, of jazz in universities, like Dr. Moses says, it's been around for a long time. Uh, 
Indiana and like you said, Gunther Schuler, who uh, wrote all about it. And, yeah. and then you look at the success of Went Marcellus, who um, mm -hmm. won his Grammy in classical trumpet and jazz, yeah. which really opened up the door in the 80s for this resurgence of jazz music. Um, and then also with the advent of, of music, classical musicians realizing that they have to diversify in order to get work because it's not, every, not everybody's gonna be able to play for the symphony. You know, there's only a limited amount of seats there. So you, if you're gonna work theater shows, you gotta have some knowledge of chord symbols and chord changes and, and using your ear, which back in the day, most classical musicians were able to improvise cadenzas, minuets, uh, what is Bach but figured bass is the same thing as chord changes that we do now. But it became a lost art because the premium of European-centric education has been on reading music. Mm -hmm. And if you go to Europe, it's not just reading music, it's oral tradition. If you look at Suzuki method, it's about hearing first. If you look at the uh, gospel music tradition, it comes from the West African uh, lineage of African storytellers. Mm -hmm. And so it's an oral tradition. And most people found out, uh, uh, historians found out that it was a very accurate means of delivering information. Mm -hmm. Not that Africans didn't have universities, did not have libraries. Yeah. Right. It was just a tradition, an oral tradition of telling stories and you had to learn them verbatim. Well, think mm -hmm. about when you learn gospel music, when you learn jazz, it's an oral tradition. The first time I learned a jazz thing, somebody did beep ba ba do ba do ba, and that's what you have to learn. And nobody wrote down F E five da da. Nobody wrote that down first. It's when we started bringing it to academia, where it's becoming a thing where you're writing stuff down. And then now, with the advent of YouTube, you can copy everything. My problem with education is this: uh, you have to think about what the word theory is. It's theory, not truth. It's not a law, it's theory. And what happens is we teach theory as if it's the end all be all for everything. But yet when you graduate from college, you want somebody, you wanna hire somebody who has a new voice and writing something fresh and new. Well, how can you do that if you're telling them this is the way you have to write? So um, a, a very good vocalist I've worked with, uh, she's the last vocalist that Count Basie hired. Her name is Carmen Bradford, known all across the world. She actually moved recently to Snellville. So she's in our backyard, most oh. people don't know. But I've been working with her and she says all the time, gospel music, jazz, work songs, blues. She says the same church, different yep. pew. Yep. And so our roots from gospel and jazz, do you know the blues, the only difference between the blues and gospel music was the lyrics at one point? There we go. The feel was the same. You could do the, let me see, you could do the same feel. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Well, I'm not singing. You don't know if that's gospel or blues. Exactly. But other than if that, went, but Dr. Dorsey, Dr. Yes. Dorsey said that. Okay. Yes. He said, yes. he said he was a blues pianist for Gertrude Mulroney. Right. Okay. Yes, and Mar he said, I wrote a lot of blues tunes, over 300. And he right. said, but God whispered in my ear wow. and said, come out of it. Right. And so he said, the only thing he did, he changed the words. Because he said, 
It's the words, gospel. You are carrying the message of the gospel. Wow. He's right. And that's what he said. That is the difference. He didn't change the harmonic vocabulary at all. Right. Okay? He right. just the words. <laughs> right. Wow. So yeah, I, I think the evolution in, in schools need to be one in which where we don't do cook, cookie cutter stuff because it's yeah. such a subjective language uh, for jazz. I, I might not be able to play as fast as somebody like Art Tatum. Yeah. But I might be able to have more soul like Horace Silver who brought in the hard bop era, era uh -huh. where you had gospel musicians coming into jazz and playing, you know? Uh -huh. So yeah, I think that, uh, uh, especially for gospel music, um, some of the gospel musicians playing right now, we as jazz musicians, we listen to some of these musicians like, what are they playing? You know what I'm saying? There was a time like, I, uh, and I, I don't know who exactly started putting these uh, the jazz chords in, but my earliest memory is probably, well, uh, what's this piano player's name? Thomas, uh, Ooh, uh. Uh, I can't think of his name, but everybody was talking about him was doing it. And then commissioned uh, Fred Hammond. Uh -huh. and, and, Fred Hammond, yeah. They started putting these uh, gospel, I mean, jazz chords in. Uh -huh. And I, really, that's how I met my girlfriend at the time because she wanted to learn the jazz chords to put in. Well, now these guys now are playing so much stuff and there's so much tutorials on, on yeah. YouTube. I'm like, yeah. how are these putting all these complicated harmonic things in? So, mm -hmm. you know, that really needs to be taught too. Because uh, playing times, Dr. Moses said, Tyrone, you ought to come and play. I was like, man, I don't know all this stuff like that. I know a couple of <laughs> things, you know. But, but you uh, know, it's really funny that you should say that because uh, do you know uh, Twinkie Clark? Yes. The Clark sister? Yes. <laughs> well, I interviewed, uh, I, I interviewed when I was in Michigan my last year in 84. Uh, I called their mother, Maddie Moss Clark. I knew her oh, and wow. I, had, I had done some singing under her. Oh, wow. And so I just called him up and uh, to interview her because my teacher asked me to write this paper on gospel <laughs> music. So I called her and I was talking to her about it. And, and I asked her about what made music gospel. And she said, you know, she said, my whole thing is that you have to stay true to the gospel harmonies. She said, I have to get on Twinkie. Sometimes Twinkie, she's playing all those diminished chords. <laughs> <laughs> Twinkie is bad to the bone. Twinkie is and bad. You know, and, and you know, they're, they're coaching. And, yeah. and, you know, and, and look, and I was just saying to a student the other day, those folk in the church, they would tell you right away, uh, 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 that ain't gospel. That's what they say, yeah. <laughs> That's what, she went to Howard, didn't Twinkie went to Howard? Like one she went year? to Howard. She went to yeah, Howard, yeah. yeah. Yeah, she yeah. was studying jazz at Howard too. She, she, she was incredible. Still, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but you know, but her mother was she the Bible. On, yes. on, on, on gospel. Yes. And in fact, her mother is the person who is given credit for bringing harmony to the gospel choir. Her mother uh, was the first one because prior to that, all gospel choirs sang in unison, sang in wow. and and heterophony. <laughs> it wasn't, they just opened their mouths and started singing. Okay, no parts. And wow. then she first started it as soprano, alto, tenor. And believe it or not, it hasn't moved much farther from that nowadays. Right. But it was Maddie Moss Clark who started that. Wow. Yeah. 
So, but but she said, yeah, she had to get on Twinkie about all these modern chords. And this. <laughs> well, I mean, we're I'm I'm learning so much from just this. I know Anthony freaked out when he heard anything the Clark sisters because he's always playing those. <laughs> those tunes yep. all the time around us. And so with this month, with us wanting to focus on, you know, celebrating black history, as we talked about earlier, American history in general, um, and this episode topic being the impact of jazz and gospel music on black history, American history in the music field. Um, I guess for our audience who may not know the <laughs> like traditions and origins of like jazz and gospel music and how they affected and how they fit into American history and black history, and also the role that they have with the music field. Can you give us an insight of um, what you see that as? Uh, if you permit me, Dr. Moses, I'll, I'll Please. start. Okay. Please. Um, you have to think about um, African-American traditions being um, not equal as much as the people that's involved with it, but the music uh, was embraced to a certain part. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, swaying your hips and doing certain things in, in the blues music, whatever, had been done since the Emancipation Pro Proclamation, 1865, where he was freed, Abraham Lincoln. And yet you have someone like Elvis come along. And when he first started mimicking African-American culture, uh, he made so much money off it. Now, I'll just take one song, for example. You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog. Yeah. Big Mama Thornton did that song right. first. And exactly. she, made a, she made a lot of money off of it, especially yeah. for the African-American woman. Mm -hmm. But he did it a couple of months later and he went uh, three times as much yes. as what Big Mama Thornton did. Big Mama but Thornton did. I say that to say this, if it wasn't for Elvis doing that, uh, the culture wouldn't have spread because when it got introduced to white culture, yeah. that's when people started really going crazy about it. And then it spread to, to, to because of the world war, the, the GIs would bring their uh, records and stuff like that and hear the radio and put the mm -hmm. tune into the radio. And that's when Europeans started here. Now America had forgotten about the blues. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until the Rolling Stones started coming to the, the British invasion yeah. and Eric Clapton came in that they were interested back in those old guys who did the blues, you know? So uh, the things that we, we learned from jazz is that the people suffered a lot to bring this music to it. Oftentimes mm -hmm. going through back doors, going through uh, not being able to eat at certain restaurants and stuff like that mm -hmm. and being able to play, we, we can't take that for granted, you know? And we have to build upon that motif, but the music has, had continually evolved. And the thing about jazz that it used to be a form that you dance to, mm -hmm. right? And then when he stopped dancing to it, when bebop came along and everybody started listening to it, it became a monument mm -hmm. where you just go and sit down and you, you clap whenever, there's no more dancing to it. I think that's when the music started really just kind of becoming stagnant. And then now it's part of academia and stuff like mm -hmm. that. But it really was a viable, uh, had a viable place in our community. And I think that if we taught kids more about jazz, about blues, mm -hmm. about gospel music, um, and educated them about it, uh, and know that it's our 
America's original art form. Yeah. Even even bluegrass, if you look it up, the banjo is an African instrument. Uh -huh. Now, most people don't know that. And most yeah. people from America, especially country people will say, that's not true. You know, yeah. but you can look up Bella Fleck and the Flecktones. Bella Fleck right. is from Hungary. And he there's a documentary of him visiting Africa yeah. and seeing the original banjo players. So, mm -hmm. uh, Lauren, I don't know if I answered your question. Can you give me a little taste of your question again uh, so I can make sure? Absolutely. I... That's exactly just wanting to hear yeah. more about the traditions of yeah jazz and gospel music and just like uh, how like the impact it's had on history. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. But uh, let me add a little bit to that. But I think also in terms of the blues, from where the blues came from, the blues was not really respected among in the black community. No. People who went to church on Sunday did not listen to the blues. So, and I've taught this over and over again in class. I said, you know, and the white community, you know, people run and grab and celebrate the blues. And I said, look, I know I had family members that we didn't really respect because they kind of, they drank moonshine and and I had some cousin that played the boogie woogie on the piano. <laughs> and they were not people that you wanted to be around, you know? And and so that I, I say that all the time. And also with Dorsey and playing for remember, now he played for Gertrude Marady. And he played and, and Bessie Smith was in that. Now that was not a life that black folk embraced because it was kind of like a lot of underground and Bessie Smith was hanging out with gangsters, her boyfriend, you know, so this was not music that black folk wanted to embrace. So when Dorsey brought his music into the church, they said, we don't want that old bluesy sound in church. Ministers said, we don't want our congregation to be rocked because black folk were trying to emulate the white church a lot. So they were singing hymns and anthems, okay? Not the blues, but where the blues was, and Darcy's music was accepted, you had those people who were migrating from the South to the North, Chicago to New York, from Alabama, from Mississippi, and they were meeting up. What they found out was that life was not easier in the North. They still couldn't find jobs in the North. They still were treated the same way to a great extent. So therefore, what Dorsey was saying in his songs and what, Ger what he was playing for Gertrude Mulroney, it fitted their life more or less. So Dorsey's religious music then fitted more the underclass blacks, the lower class blacks. And that's where gospel went. It went to those folk who were street sweepers, who worked in factories, you know, those people. So it was a thing when I got dressed up on Sunday and went to church and I could really, you know, have a good time in church, but I didn't go to those big churches, those sophisticated churches where, the, where they sang hymns and sang anthems. No, okay? Yeah. But uh, so Dorsey tells the story. He told the story, he was trying to get his music heard. And he said, everybody would tell him, come and sing your music. And he would come and they would ignore him. 
And this one pastor said, okay, Tom, come to my church on Sunday morning. I'm going to put you up just before bringing soloists. I want you to sit right on the front row and we're going to put you up. And he said he and his musician, he and his soloist, they got there. They had the opening. They had the prayer. They read the scripture. He said, then they took up the offering and they had the sermon. They did the invitational hymn. They did the dismissal and left me and my soloist sitting right on the front row. <laughs> never, <laughs> never acknowledged him, never even introduced him. That's right. how much they did not want Dorsey's music in church. They did not want it because it was too close to the blues. You know, it was so what, 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 what Tyrone just played, you know, they didn't want that in church. You know, and in fact, in 1969, when Edwin Hawkins came out with Oh Happy Day, mm -hmm. they didn't want that in church. And I remember, I remember, I know friends who say they start playing Oh Happy Day and those women say, ah, 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 we don't want that in here. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. And so we did the same thing to Kirk Franklin we when did. we did Stomp. Mm -hmm. We don't want that in here. And melodies from heaven. Melodies? Yeah, yeah. You don't want that. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny. It uh, it's so funny because, like, my grandmother is, uh, when, I, when I go to church and it sounds like good old church. And when we get away from church and she's like, because uh, I would say something about something on the radio. And she was uh, like, oh, no, I don't listen to that blues. And I'm like, grandma, it's not the blues anymore. But, like, the story that you're saying of, like, how it is not, uh, was not looked great upon back then. I definitely can relate with that. Just hearing my grandma saying that, and I look at her like, "Wait, what? Was this a thing? Was this like how it was?" Um, oh, there were a lot I, of things too. There's yeah, a lot of things. Uh, that music, band, instruments were there. You would wail in there, and look, uh, Alan Lomax mm -hmm. talks about the tradition of the women were really in charge of mm -hmm. the worship, and it was them singing these these kind of lines, uh, this moaning kind of thing, right? And there was no instruments. They didn't want any uh -uh. instruments in there. And I don't know, Dr. Nope. Mosman, maybe you can tell me when instruments started becoming part of the church, but it wasn't that. They didn't want you to play. And even to this day, there's some churches you go to, yeah. when it's yeah. time for that old deacon to get on his knees, oh, yeah. Heavenly Father, right. you better right. not play. Right. Don't play nothing right there. You know what I'm saying? Oh. Yeah, well, right. because that, that to this tradition of, of the line out him. You know where that was, and 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 they didn't have instruments then. If they had instruments, see, I grew up in South Carolina, and and this is this is interesting because Tyrone, you grew up in New Orleans. I did, yep. See now that now that's an interesting music tradition. Yes. Because New Orleans, you've always had you've had the 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 Congo part, uh, and you've had all of that music, and even the classical. In right. New Orleans, and also, so Tyrone has this rich, 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 rich tradition he comes from. Yeah. Me, I come from South Carolina, and as a little boy, the instruments I remember in some churches was, of course, there was a piano in my church, which is the Baptist church, and that was the sophisticated church. Mm -hmm. But then, if I went to visit my aunt, they had the bass drum, yeah. you know, right. <laughs> and and they had tambourines, okay. Yeah. 
And so, and those were the instruments and somebody would bring a washboard and yeah. they may have, you know, but they didn't even have pianos in some of those churches, mm -hmm. you know? So this whole thing uh, of pianos could really be since the 70s and some of these churches right. in the right. South. And maybe for some, it could be right now. I have some cousins in South Carolina. When I go way down to St. Stephen's and Johnsonville, yeah. they still no pianos. It's yeah. guitar. Guitar. Yes, exactly. You know, so things aren't changing so fast, but they're changing <laughs> gradually. Right, right. Well, yeah. we, you know, I have this one last question, and I, I feel like I could talk to y'all like for a whole day about the history of both <laughs> jazz, gospel, spirituals, and everything. But for our last question for right now, um, I want to know what do y'all hope, what would you like to see um, in the future regarding jazz, regarding gospel, regarding spirituals in higher education? We didn't really talk about spirituals a lot, but I know it can, it definitely, I think it gets placed on the back burner a lot of the times. Or if they somebody do a spiritual, it's always the closer. It's never really talked about as much. So what would y'all like to see in the future regarding those three mediums of Black music? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll, I'll start to run this time. But um, certainly, I would like to see the respect given to those genres of music academically speaking, so that, and I think now it has just been approved recently that uh, students can perform spirituals in competition, okay? That's, yeah. So this music, uh, a book of repertoire songs that's, that singers can sing came out, the new book for vocal literature. And I think there was, one African-American composer in the book, one. Wow. And there was listed one song, you know, that was accepted in this thick book that I have that's called Vocal Literature. Mm -hmm. So that has to change. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not, that has to change because we have so many African-American composers who have written, who have arranged spirituals and who have composed okay music several different genres symphonic choral vocal on every level and you just can't have a you can't say you have an education in music and you can't name one song by an african-american composer or you can't name one african-american composer you know and to say you are an american the trained musician. And I think for you as educators, mm -hmm. you kind of feel that, that, that there's something missing here. Why yes. don't I know this? Yes, you yes. Know? And, and it is there. So I think that is the great problem now that uh, we really give much more room and recognition to African-American composers and the history of African-American composers in this country because we have so many, we can go all the way back. You know, it was it was the Czechoslovakian composer, Antonin Dvorak, Dvorak yeah. who, who said, who said of Harry T. Burley, you can take one of these songs that he has arranged, 
you can uh, create a school of music around this. And you know what he was talking about? He was talking about the spiritual, go down Moses. Yes. You know, so we start reading about the new biography, reading in the new biography that just came out of Harry T. Burley and how Antonin Dvorak looked at him as a composer and what he was doing, you know? So there, there's so much there, but I think we are moving, but as I said, not fast enough. And I know Tyrone can speak of that because you can say the same thing of Duke Ellington and jazz. You can say, why don't we know Duke Ellington's symphonic music? Why don't we, you know, where are we? So I'll just, I'll just leave it there. Exactly right. Uh, man, it's funny that you said Dvorak because uh, uh, the scale that they believe was a primitive scale, uh -huh. the pentatonic scale, you know yes. this. Right. Right. That's uh -huh. the New World Symphony, right? The New World Symphony. Yeah. That's yeah. a pentatonic scale, which is uh, used in African American, African culture, uh -huh. you know, uh, Asian culture. Yeah. Um, to, Dr. Moses said everything I would say about education as a whole, uh, the only thing that I would add to it is that we got to teach African-Americans about our history and about the music because the top people in jazz right now are Asian uh -huh. or white. Uh -huh. And uh, we have a pocket of black musicians but uh -huh. if you go on YouTube, these kids that's killing the music right now, yeah, 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 are not necessarily black kids. And then you you're finding yeah. out even in gospel music, there's a lot of white kids learning this uh, gospel. Yes. and I'm like, yes. I'm all for that. Yes. But at, at what point do we forget that the originators of the music need to be involved with learning the music as well? Okay. And I think in our school system, we say these kids today say, oh, that's old timey music. I'm looking forward to this, whatever. Well, you wouldn't have that music if it wasn't for this music, you know? Yeah, exactly. But this is, this is part of our culture and it's worth learning because there's a lot of people making money of it, off of it and they're yeah. not in the upper echelon of the people anymore where yeah. it used to be. And I think that happens to be the problem with a lot of things with, I'm, I'm reading this book by, um, um, Walkers, uh, I can't think think this lady's name, but it's called Their Highest Potential. I don't know. And it that. talks about this segregated school in uh, North Carolina uh -huh. and how they transitioned to desegregating schools, but they did so much uh, to, 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 to create this school that was had a lot of excellence behind it, even though they didn't have the resources of the white counterparts. And so there's a lot of stories about HCBs, HBCUs and how their programs, like, you know, you look at Fisk University, all right. these universities that was uh, um, fundamental in the success of the music, that's no longer there anymore, right? right? Yeah. Yep. And people are not going to Morehouse to learn jazz and people are not uh -huh. going to uh, these other places. They go into uh -huh. Berkeley and all these yep. other schools yep. and Juilliard Yep. and all these other places to learn about jazz. But hey, the same thing is happening in sports. Uh -huh. Where you best basketball players coming out of Duke University yeah. and Wake Forest. I mean, it used to come yeah. out of Southern and Grambling and Alcorn yeah. and, uh, and, and, and Morehouse and Clark and all these, these people came out of it. 
and Howard. Uh, so mm-hmm. we have to educate our kids as well. We have to start playing uh-huh. this music for our kids. Yes, yes. We got to start. The piano used to be a place where the 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 entertainment center of the household was. Right. You don't have pianos anymore. Everybody got their headphones uh-huh. on. You at dinner time, you would interact. Uh-huh. Am I right, Doctor Moses? At You're right. And they oh. have these 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 other extra appliances, extra right. appliances, keyboards. <laughs> right. Right. And look, and I'm 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 old school there. That you cannot beat that acoustic sound. You cannot. You, I don't care what you do, they can make some of the best and the finest, you right. know, keyboards. But I think my thing has always been we need to train our ears to these acoustic sounds. Yes. So that we know what's there. And and I, I was gonna say, I think remember when I, I there was a thing I wanted to say, you were talking exactly what you were saying, but I wanted to say the idea of we've moved from lear- a rote kind of learning of jazz to a written kind of learning of jazz, I think. Now, yes. you can know far better than me. That is correct. And uh, many of our kids, we shy away from the study of reading. And so when you get away from reading the music, then you fall behind because immediately if something, somebody had you something, and, and I've said this over and over again to even to my friends who are playing gospel. I try to find, if I'm going to teach gospel choir or something, I will try to find a piece of music with it written down. Yes. Okay. But then, you know, you can't find every gospel pianist that can read. And, and the big problem is, the big problem is, I'll tell this story. I was at a gospel convention, Thomas A. Dorsey, uh, National Convention of Gospel Choirs and Courses. And I was um, I was coming from one session going to another and I saw a friend of mine, Ted Thomas. He was furious. I mean, he was so angry. And I said, hey, Ted, what's wrong? He said, I cannot believe it. I just, I can't believe You, these kids, they will play anything, any kind of complicated harmony, any kind of music, and you set a hymn in front of them and they can't read it. Mm-hmm. And he was coming from a session where he had just, youth session, evidently just put a hymn down. They couldn't even read it. You have to have literacy across the board. You have to have literacy. Across have, the board. And that's, yeah. And that's it, then where you guys come in. Well, I, I mean, like Anthony said, we could sit here for 24 plus hours listening to your your stories and all the knowledge yeah. that you have. And we're so appreciative. We wanted to do a, a game um, okay. called uh, Name That Standard in Gospel, uh, in gospel Tune. And so we, we've done this in the past with other like genres, but this will be fun because I don't think uh, some of these, some people may know, some people might not. And so for those of you at home who are listening to this, like try to see if you can recognize it. If not, okay. we'll have a season one playlist where we'll put all okay. this on. So you'll be exposed to this. So okay. yeah, let's see what goes on. Uh, Anthony and Michael, if you want to try as well. <laughs> I think let's I'll see. be good. I think I'm good. Remember, if y'all see my head go like this, it's frozen, right? <laughs> uh, oh, Lord. 
Okay, so I'll start with the first one. I can't hear. Wait a minute. It, it all disappeared. It went what out. Happened? It oh, went out. Okay. Here, I think pull it pull it back from the mic a little bit. There's pull it a, back. Yeah. Okay. Try Here, it again. I'll try that again. Or I'll, I'll go to a different one. Hey man, who's that cat coming down the street? I don't know, but it's fine for me like that. This is man with the bone. Still having himself a ball. Call him uh, uh, uh so it's from the call him glow trials, but it's called um, absolutely it's called uh, uh, don't tell me the name of it. Sweet <laughs> Georgia Brown. Yes, yeah. Yeah. I didn't Absolutely. know that was the name of that. I knew I knew that it was the, the Globetrotters, yes, but I never yeah. knew that was the actual name of it. I thought that oh, was sure, that that theme, yeah, know that theme. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> next one. What's the next one? Oh, it went away again. It's going out again. It's going out. Oh, is this one going out for some reason? Okay. Yes, yeah. yeah, it's kind of, maybe it's loud. Okay, I'll pull it back even more then. Oh, take oh, the yeah. A train. Got New Galaxy A train. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that would be, be an immediate one. Okay, next one. Billy Strayhorn wrote that song though. Yes. Huh? Can't hear it. What I can't hear. Let's see. It's disappearing. It's so low I can't hear it. So I pulled it back. I put a little bit further back. Do I need to push I it? I think we all have to be on mute. All of us have to be on mute. So it only okay. on you. Okay, let's do that. Yeah. Uh, everybody mute. And then, and let then go. when Dr. Moses raises his hands to tell us what it yes. is. <laughs> 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 but I think I might know it too. I heard a little too. Yeah. Okay, Did you, I didn't hear anything, so let me yeah. see what. I'm going to mute you, Dr. Moe, so you can hear, because I think that's it. So let's okay. try it. Anthony, I mean, you know it. I do, and the reason I know it is because uh, Dr. Moses, you're muted. You're muted, Dr. Moses. Oh, let's unmute. Oh, I said, yeah. I I know the I know the lyrics. The Lord is my light and my salvation, but I don't know that tune at all. Do you know that it's funny because you taught me that song? Which one? It is "Whom Shall I Fear." You taught me that song in gospel choir. Yes, really? Moses. yes, the reason I know that song is because we, I sang it with you in gospel choir like three years ago. You know, it's the Zoom thing messed him up. It's the Zoom call uh, messed him up. I'm well, sure. I'm, I'm really, did you, was Queen in there when you were in there? Yes, yes. That's what Queen taught that song. I, I don't know that song. I know, uh -huh. yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. But I, but I still don't, I don't know it. <laughs> Oh my lord. Queen. You've heard us practice that all the time. And it's one of my favorite songs now. Really? 
Yeah, I know. I, re I remember gospel choir singing it, but mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I will but tell I, I you this, Anthony, as, as professors, we got so much stuff going on in our head and right. stuff. Yeah. At the time right. where it's going on, if somebody else is teaching it, that gives us a chance to do there something. You go. There you go. Right. right. But as I said, you know, and, and, but you know the text. Yes. The Lord yeah. is my, my salvation. You know, you, yes. yeah. 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 Okay, Here, I'll, I'll do another. Um... Okay, let's see. Oh, that's Richard Smallwood. Total, uh, total praise, right? Oh my gosh, that was barely yeah, yeah. five seconds. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, my favorite part in there. Uh, yeah, which one? Yes, 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 yes. Which that part is like a Rachmaninoff thing. We did. Uh, right. There we go. That's a rock right. monologue. Okay. You gotta yes. put my jazz in there. Uh -huh. There we go. Oh yeah. my goodness. Well, I mean, that, that was amazing. I mean, I'd rather hear you play than anything. I'd rather yes, exactly. <laughs> well, we're just so thankful of that you two had the time to join us for this episode today. And thank you so much for sharing your stories and your knowledge with us. And we're so excited for everyone to hear this and just all the uh, the comments and you know the discussions that'll come because of this. So thank you so 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 much. Thank you guys are welcome, and I'm really pleased that you're doing this. Yes. Okay. So, but you you just kind of move the needle a little bit for us, you know, <laughs> and that's and that's what that's what and you'll see that even as you grow as educators that it's going to be you will have to keep pushing that needle a little bit farther so the responsibility that you have uh yeah to to really move music and many times like tyrone said if it's going to be done you may have to create it yourself and make sure it happens but don't feel bad okay don't feel bad do it and do it with a lot of pride. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank y'all so much. Um, thank you. It was so great hearing y'all words. Thank you. Yeah. I just wanted to say thank you to our amazing guests. And I want to thank everybody for listening uh, for this week. Please stay tuned uh, for our coming up uh, episodes. Thank you again for listening and hope y'all have a great day. Bye. 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 <laughs> thank you for being a part of our conversation. You can learn more and reach out to us at relativepitchpodcast.com. Remember to subscribe to our listening platforms and follow us on our social media. See you next time.